topic like this, you might have the impression that this doesn't have a whole lot to do with all of us because we tend to think of counseling as something more for professionals because it's become a very professionalized thing in our society. That being said, it says in Romans, Paul tells uh, the Romans, you are equipped by God, able to also to admonish and encourage one another. And so there's a sense in which aspects of this are responsibilities of every church member. Now admittedly, there may be problems that come up that we're not exactly sure the best way to deal with them because we haven't studied what the Bible says about them, because they're really complex, but that's no different from any other issue that we would try to look at the Bible and say, what does the Bible say? I mean, you know, complex ethical issues or things like that. There are times and places to talk to someone who's studied it more, whether that be in a book or something else. The question is, and I think this gets into our introduction here, why do we use the Bible as the primary authority in considering life's problems instead of something else? I think the obvious answer is, of course, that the Bible comes from God. Now, this section is comparatively short because I'm assuming that we're on the same page in terms of being committed to the Bible as our source of truth. Uh, there are, of course, situations where there are conflicts between different sources of truth. Um, people uh, back in the late 1800s, one of these was the question of evolution. They said, well, science says such and such, and the Bible says such and such. Which one are we going to go with? Some people tried to pick one over the other. Some people tried to merge the two. The answer was then and should always be that the Bible has final authority. If a scientist or a doctor or a professor or a theologian or whoever says something and the Bible says something different, which one is right? The Bible is right. Um, so we have to bear that in mind. When the Bible comes from God, I think it's important for us to remember with regard to God's character that He is good, that He is all-powerful, and that He is all-knowing. And this particularly comes up uh, in, later on in our study when we talk about one of the difficult issues which is the question of suffering, aging, and death. So God is the author of the Bible. We know this from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching and instruction and all of these other things that lead to spiritual maturity. The Bible is God's revelation spoken and recorded through men. We know that this is true from 2 Peter 1.21 where it talks about holy men of God speaking as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is sufficient to answer directly or in principle the important questions of life. Why do we know this? Because 2 Peter 2, 1-3 says that the Bible produces spiritual growth and 2 Timothy 3.17 says that the Bible enables maturity. And so if we have questions that are relevant to our spiritual growth, the answers to those questions are found in the Bible. We have everything that is necessary to life and godliness. We say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about such and such. Then either we haven't read it closely enough or it's not as relevant to life and godliness as we thought it would be. You know, questions like, I don't know, should I buy an iPad? The Bible going to say specifically in the chapter and verse, 
Paul go buy the latest iPod by the top of the line model? Right, right. No, why? Because that's not the God's goal in the Bible was to have a specific list of every single decision. Like in the book of Proverbs, it is rather to train us through principles to make wise decisions, to deal with various things that come up. Furthermore, the Bible is finished. Revelation 22 talks about this and warns against those who would add to the Scriptures or who would take away from the Scriptures. Now, we know that God has used various means, various ways of revealing Himself. General revelation, creation, testifies to God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows His handiwork, right? So we look out at nature and we see evidence of God's power. Uh, this past week, my wife and I were watching a, a disaster movie and these people were, you know, had a little bit of this agenda about the evil capitalists got greedy and drilled too far and caused an explosion and now everybody's got to sort through the whole thing. But there was a girl on there and she was arguing for intelligent design. Not God per se, but intelligent design. Another guy was like, well, but that doesn't make any sense, and here's all these reasons why. When we look at nature around us, we see the hand of God, unless we willfully choose to be blind to it. Conscience also reminds us of God because we have a sense of right and wrong. People will say, well, no, that's simply a product of the conditioning of society. Why do so many societies have at their core certain concepts that certain things are right and certain things are wrong? Admittedly skewed, they don't all match up, but why is there this cross-cultural recognition of right and wrong? Because God gave all of us a conscience. God revealed himself more specifically through special revelation. He did this by means of face-to-face -face communication. He appeared to Adam. He appeared to Abraham. He appeared to Moses. Through speaking, uh, you remember the still, small voice that he spoke to Samuel with, through dreams and visions. He spoke to Daniel, for example, through dreams and visions. And through miracles. We don't tend to think of that as a form of God's revelation, but it is a means of God's special revelation. Here is God stepping in and not so much suspending the laws of nature as he is showing that he <laughs> is not bound by what we consider to be laws of nature. And there's a number of examples there. God's greatest self-revelation was, of course, through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1-2, God spoke in many ways and in many divisions, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son. And, of course, John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, rebelled his glory, glory is of the only begotten Son of the Father. So if this is true, that God has revealed himself, that God has fully and finally revealed himself in Jesus, and that with the completion of the Bible no further revelation is necessary, we should then be cautious and beware of competing sources of authority. Uh, there's essentially this question of do we have a biblical concept of ourselves and our problems and how to grow spiritually? Or do we have various human approaches where 
they'll say this thing and then a few years later they'll say no we were wrong about that let's come out with this idea instead or no let's tweak the previous guy's idea a little bit there's there's this constant turnover there's this constant speculation there's this lack of certainty and the problem is when you have something that's fixed and solid the truth of the bible and something that has rapid evolution in a legitimate sense change um, a rejection, acceptance, modification, you can't put the two together, they don't match up. You have to say what God has said is finally and fully sufficient. So what then are wrong or insufficient approaches to some of life's problems? Well, I think it's helpful first of all to think about the time period when many of these ideas came out. And then we'll talk a little bit about what some of their specific ideas were. Sigmund Freud was in the 1900s to 1920s. Carl Jung was in the 1900s to 1920s. Alfred Adler, also in the 1920s. B.F. Skinner, a little bit later, 30s and 40s. Abraham Maslow, 1940. Carl Rogers in the 1940s. Fritz Perls was in the 1950s. Albert Ellis, 1950s, Aaron Beck, 1960s, and then since then, there's been a, uh, there's probably a better way to say this, but a preoccupation with sexuality and a refinement or a combination of earlier theories. There haven't been a whole lot of new things that have come out, just different combinations of these pre-existing concepts. So what then are some key aspects of these main models? First of all, you have the psychoanalysis or the psychodynamic model. You have Freud. Freud's basic idea, and there's probably more to it than this, but a, I think a good basic summary is that past events drive present issues. There's an emphasis on the subconscious. There's an emphasis on various progressions. So what is the issue for Freud? The issue is a problem of self-deception due to the unconscious nature of the mind. So, let's chat about this for a second. Do you have a subconscious about which you're not aware and over which you have no control? But you're aware of it, and you can choose not to obey it. Okay, what is your subconscious? Okay. All right. So I would I would concede that certainly there are things that we don't actively think about in terms of the function of our physical body. Does the same hold true for our actions, our voluntary actions? Are they driven in that same way by subconscious motives, thoughts, desires? No. Here's the puzzling thing. Sometimes it seems like they are. Why? Sure. That... Okay. If I do something over and over again, is it possible for an action that is a moral action to have the same sort of automatic response as breathing and walking and those sorts of things? We call it a habit, right? 
So in that respect, what he's saying is correct in that, but he's incorrect in saying that it's completely beyond our control. He's correct in saying we observe something that looks like it just happens automatically. The thing that he got wrong was why it is that way and what was the root cause of it. Because what did Freud say the root cause of all these things were? Yes, or different things that happen earlier in your existence. So, he talked about this idea of conscious. He would say that there was conscious to pre-conscious to unconscious. And then he would say there's this idea of a superego, which was, had to do with morality. And then id, which dealt with instincts, that then controlled ego, which was reality. He used a bunch of words to try to describe what was going on, but he did so without reference to sin, and he did so without reference to the hope of the gospel in changing those sorts of things. Does what happened to me as a child affect me? Absolutely. Am I bound to do something wrong simply because my parents did something wrong? Am I bound to do something wrong because someone did something wrong to me? No. And that is the hopelessness of the Freudian model. You are, you have no choice. You just end up being this way because of all these things that happened to you. And the only way to get past it is to sort of figure out who did what and when and where and why. And then we can blame them and we can move on. I mean, that's kind of how a lot of it boils down to. Um, and a lot of it, this idea of progressions. So, so this idea of progressions. He said, well, um, there's these stages that children go to. And he said, if you, if you don't complete this stage, then you'll have a fixation on this thing. If you don't complete this stage, then you'll have a fixation on that thing. If you don't complete that stage, you'll be fixated on that. And for him, the things that he talked about fixations were, were bizarre. So why are some people uptight? Because they didn't poop enough as babies, you know? Which is, when you say it out loud, science sounds kind of ridiculous. But he's trying to explain, if you say the reason that I am this way now is because of past things, then maybe something just went wrong in the way that you were raised, in the way that your stages of development happen. And so there are such bizarre things as saying, okay, so now to fix it, we're going to try to go back through some of those stages. And that just that doesn't make any sense. But why do you feel discouraged or, or inadequate or all these sorts of things? Well, because, you know, your parents didn't say enough nice things to you when you were a kid. Can we move past that by God's grace? Yes. All right. Then we have Carl Jung. What's fascinating about this is that you see it in all kinds of different places. Freud, you see a lot of places, too, sort of, you know, well, why did you do this? Well, you know, it's just sort of my subconscious. It just sort of happened. Carl Jung was this... this I don't know if you're familiar with uh, a guy named Frank Herbert wrote a series of books called Dune. In that series of books, there is this development of 
a concept that there is a racial memory. Jung had sort of that same idea, which was all of us have these primal instincts, fears, core things that we can't explain. Why are you scared of the dark? Because your monkey ancestors didn't want to go out and get eaten by a tiger. You know, those sorts of ideas. Bringing it to a more uh, immediate thing, um, he would talked about these attitudes of the introvert and the extrovert. How many of you have heard those names? Yeah? That's from this guy. So, let me illustrate this. Why is it important that this is a man-made label instead of a biblical concept? Or what effect does it have on how we move forward or not? That's it. I'm an introvert. I can't talk to people because it's just how I am. Using his label, I would be an introvert. Okay? Why do I not act that way all the time? Because I had a dad who said, go talk to people at the family reunion that you don't know, that you see once a year, that you can't remember their names or what they do, and it's really awkward, but you still need to do it. Okay? Or other family members who modeled that same sort of thing. Or just a recognition that God calls us to step outside of ourselves and not live selfishly. And so if I say I'm an introvert, I can't change, I can't and won't talk to people, I'm not doing what God has called me to do. There are others of us who tend toward being very outgoing sometimes needs to be dialed back a little bit. I'm just speaking my mind. You can control that. It's not like you're an extrovert and you can only do extrovertish sort of things. You can say, all right, this is not the time and the place to do, to be loud and obnoxious or whatever, you know. This is a time to be sober and reflective. So, the person who would be described in Jung's terms as the introvert, God says, step outside of yourself, minister to people. The person who he would describe here as an extrovert, recognize that it's not all about you and dial it back sometimes. We're not controlled by that label. There's these issues of differences in perception of the world. Uh, this idea of a collective unconscious explains common patterns. So. For Freud, there were these urges, and for Freud, these urges were primarily about sexual expression. For Jung, these urges had a variety of applications, uh, but past, past experiences did drive present behavior and future goals. Jung had these ideas of archetypes. Um, Anima or animus, masculine or feminine in the subconscious, this idea of a shadow or of an animal nature, this idea of a self, the goal is to become self. And the problem is not sin, but it's suppressing these archetypes. You don't recognize these ancestral fears and problems and issues, and if you suppress them and ignore them, life doesn't work. What does the Bible say the problem is? The problem is sin. We've got to deal with it according to God's pattern. 
So we have the psychosocial, psychodynamic um, model. Then we move on to the behaviorist models. You have Pavlov, you have Watson, you have Skinner. Their goal was to change behavior, to change the person, positive and negative reinforcement. So we have these ideas that associations explain phobias or fears, and changing the stimuli affect the responses. Where do we see these ideas coming in? Why do you give up stickers to little kids? Conditioning. So I'm not saying it's wrong to give stickers, but here's a challenge. If someone only comes to Sunday school and only says their verse because they get a sticker, but that's sometimes what happens, and so we have to recognize the influence of the behaviorist on sometimes our attitude toward discipline. So uh, people quote the verse from Proverbs, if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. Discipline is far more comprehensive than merely one thing. And if we only say positive and negative reinforcement, we are ignoring the power of the Holy Spirit. We are ignoring the fact that we are more complex than animals. My cat has a habit. He comes and he scratches on my door if I'm not up by a certain time every morning. You have to ask the question, did he condition me or did I condition him? Either way, we're in a situation which is difficult to change at this point. Why does he do that? Because he wants food. And there is this expectation in terms of his instincts or habits or however it works for a cat that such and such a time, I get this. If I ignored him for long enough, would he potentially stop coming and bugging me for food? Potentially. Why does he do it? Because he's been conditioned to do it. Are people more complex than an animal? Yes. Why? We can choose not to act that way. We don't have to always follow the same pattern. We can say, maybe it's a bad pattern, we can change it. The cat's just like, I want the food, give me the food, this is how it works, you know? But if we get ourselves into a pattern that's a sinful pattern, we have to say, this is wrong, it has to be replaced, it has to be changed. Um, all right, then we go to the primal psychotherapy the humanistic, the self-actualization kind of ideas. I kind of lump these together because they're kind of connected, although there's variations among them. The first was this idea from Adrian Adler. His goal was individual psychology. He talked about subjective goals. How many of you have heard the phrase inferiority complex? What do we use, what is that supposed to describe? you feel better as you go? Okay. Yeah, why you can't do it, why you feel bad about yourself, that sort of thing. For him, the goal, the idea was that self wanted to assert itself. And the inability to assert yourself creates problems. We idealize what we want to be. What we want to be may change over time. What we want to be is sometimes opposed by tendencies to be ruling or getting or avoiding. The better motivation is to do that which is socially useful. So when we say, here's what I want to be, what I want to be may change over time, the goal is to become one's true self. 
that sound familiar at all? That's how most, a lot of people in our society operate, right? So, uh, when it comes to issues like, I mean, it can be, it can be as basic as, I want to be more physically fit, and I pursue that goal, and there's these obstacles to that goal. That's perhaps a legitimate expression of this sort of concept. But then it takes strange turns. Why does the, uh, why is the transgender concept popular in our day? Here's my ideal self. My present self doesn't match up with my ideal self. The solution is to make my present self match up with my ideal self, and then everything is good. And in a, in a context in which the only uh, limitation on what we can do is what technology permits, that makes perfect sense in a strange sort of way, right? When we have this idea of, um, okay, the idea of an inferiority complex, their thought is you should never feel bad about yourself. Is it appropriate to feel bad about yourself sometimes? When is it appropriate to feel bad about yourself? When you sin, we should feel badly. So, you know, if we suppress always the urge to feel badly about ourselves, then we are focused on, you know, stamping out the idea of guilt. And guilt can be a God-given tool to drive us to biblical change. Then we have the Maslowian concept. Um, for him, we have the concept of self-esteem. So when we talk about self-esteem, for example, you need to love yourself more and everything will be better. There's a place, I can't remember if it's up here or if it's down the river. I think it's up here. It's called the self-esteem shop or something like that. Okay. They probably feel badly about themselves now. Yeah. But that was like a really, really, really big thing maybe, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, when I was a kid, yeah, when I was a, when I was a kid, I remember like it was kind of on the tail end, like everybody was focused on self-esteem. You're not doing well in school, you need to feel better about yourself. You're not doing well at your job, you need to be, feel better about yourself. Sometimes you do need to recognize that you're capable of more than you think that you can do. But there's a difference between a false perception of yourself as amazing and wonderful and you can be all that you can be and there's a difference between that and an accurate perception of yourself relative to the world around you. I realized I was never going to be a basketball player. The self-esteem model would say I should just keep telling myself I can do it. But facts are facts. I can't jump, I can't shoot, I can't dribble. I, it's a foolish pursuit for me to say that if I just felt better about myself, I would be a better basketball player. Because I'm not gonna. It's too late, you know? But um, this kind of thinking has sort of permeated our society. Maslow also had this hierarchy of needs. So, hierarchy of needs, you had this idea that it moved up from physiological, and then it went up to safety, and then love, and then esteem, 
and then self-actualization. So, are these needs? Okay, yeah, so we need to eat, need to drink, we need shelter at some basic level. Paul said if we have food and shelter and clothing, with these we'll be content. Okay? What about safety? Is safety a need? Certainly something we all want, for sure. What about love? Is love a need? Okay. Right. But the way that this tends to be put is that people's love, we need other people to love us or we can't, we can't flourish as human beings. And the reality is, if we have a relationship with God, we can be like Jeremiah and every single other person we have contact with can hate our guts and we can still serve God and function as a human being, right? Is that a difficult spot to be in? Yes. But is, it, is this... Is being loved by everyone around us necessarily a need or a goal? Then you have this idea of esteem, not just that you're loved, but also that you're respected, that you feel good about yourself, all of those sorts of things. And then self-actualization is just that you are aware of yourself as a human person, you've achieved. This is, this is sort of like a humanistic sort of idea. For them, righteousness is not the goal. It's becoming a fuller, complete human being. And that can take many forms, success in your career, a uh, certain level of knowledge, certain number of degrees, all of those sorts of things. But the problem is, like we've been looking at from Ecclesiastes, those are empty goals. You can have five degrees after your name and still be a miserable person. You can have all the money in the world and not be happy. You can be extremely important and have a large amount of power and not be fulfilled. Why? Because this progression is not a biblical progression, even though it is one that's held out in our society. So that was Abraham Maslow, and we see that a lot in our, um, and this is where some of the things, he talks about these obstacles to self-actualization. What are obstacles? Things like financial situation or people who make life difficult for us or all those sorts of things. But the Bible says, I mean, for example, Paul's words, I've learned to be content with everything and with nothing. So not having the ability from a physical humanistic standpoint to progress through these levels is not an obstacle to our spiritual growth. Uh, so I think that that's one of the flaws of this model. Then we have the Rogerian or the person-centered. Instead of it being like everybody is collectively moving toward this goal of self-actualization, Rogers had this idea that it was very focused on the individual person. Environment is important. Qualities of genuineness are important. The goal is acceptance and empathy. So, you need to be transparent. You need people to like you. You need people to listen to you. Are those common goals in society today? I think those are goals that people strive toward. We want people to... Um, that, I mean, this whole idea of of being open and transparent. Why do we value that as a virtue? I'm not saying we should lie and cover things up, but why is that held up as such a virtue? Because people have adopted some of this sort of idea that it's, that it's crucial to our progression as individual persons. And 
this idea that environment is important. I mean, this was a really popular idea from the 60s onward. If we fix the environment, everything would be better. So if you have people that are living in slums and you put them in a nice apartment, everything is perfect. The projects in Chicago illustrated that if you take someone who lives in a slum and put them in a nice spot without them as an individual person changing and recognizing responsibility, you end up with a skyscraper full of garbage. And that's not a, it's not a, um, it's not a race thing. I mean, it's true of all sorts of different ethnicities of people. If there is no responsibility, I mean, I had, I had family members who lived in a, a, a little mobile home down in Georgia, and you walked in, and it was just, it was filthy. Why? Because they didn't choose to take responsibility and, and all these other sorts of things. So it, again, it's not just a one group of people, another group of people. It's that changing the environment doesn't fix the person. Then we have this idea of gestalt for this guy named Pearls. The whole is greater than its parts. The goal is self-awareness. So this was a um, uh, just a, a further development of these sorts of things. Uh, I think his idea, as I recall, was just that you need to you need to know what's going on. You need to recognize that there are aspects of you that are um, you can't just break it down to fix this one little thing here, fix this one little thing here. You have to take it as a whole. And there's a sense in which there is a right biblical understanding that we are more than a physical body, we are more than a spiritual being, we are a combination of all these things. That's true. But if we approach it without reference to biblical concepts, we end up in trouble. Then we have cognitive theory. And the, the complication with cognitive theory is that it has some parallels to what would be legitimate approaches to biblical counseling. So there were two guys here, Ellis and Beck. Well, the first one was the rational emotive sort of idea. So the goal was to think through uh, balancing your views of yourself, of the world, future, correct wrong ideas, and negative perceptions, fix errors of logic, and uh, uh, correct overgeneralization or personalization, essentially, it was a very specific approach that said, I'm sorry, that the rational motive was three things. What is the activating event? What are your beliefs? What is your consequences? I've got a lot of little lines and I mixed up which one was running there. So the first one, the rational motive was activating event, beliefs, consequences. If you reframe or correct those various steps, you will get a different outcome. And that's true to a certain extent. The parallel to a biblical model is the event does not determine your response. It provides an occasion for you to have a response. Your beliefs is what drives you to respond a particular way to a particular circumstance. And the consequence or the outcome is tied to the event and your beliefs and then your response in those circumstances. So from that respect, it was true. The problem was that it very much didn't have a concept of sin. It was just 
have a right view of the world. They didn't have a concept of God. It was just, do what will make life better for you. And then we come to cognitive behavioral, where the idea was, if you balance views of yourself, the world, and the future, fix all of these logic errors, essentially it treated you as though you were a computer. There's a programming error. You get an error when you load the web page. If you fix those things, everything will be better. Now, what's the challenge about this? It works. If you are thinking wrongly about something and you change your thinking and now you're thinking rightly about it, life will generally be better. But the danger of it is if we think that it will always work apart from a biblical perspective on the world, then we can get into trouble with these sorts of models, even though of all of the different ones, they are perhaps the closest to a biblical model. I think it's important for us to distinguish between different types of psychology because I think it's been easy for Christians to sort of lump all aspects of psychology in the same thing and say none of them are useful. There are, and these are not any specific terms I found in a book, these are just my attempts to describe them, there are observational types of psychology. There's cognitive psychology. How does the mind work? We watch it, we try to figure out how it works. There's biological psychology. How does the mind work with reference to the body? There's developmental psychology. How does the mind work at different points in life? And there is social psychology. How does the mind work in interaction with other people? There was a guy named, I think, Charles Milgram and did these experiments that tried to explain how the uh, Nazis in Germany ended up behaving the way that they did and, and um, he did all these different tests and things to arrive at a particular uh, conclusion and, and this was one of many attempts to explain why people act certain ways with reference to other people. Then there are applicational types of psychology. Clinical psychology studies and practices ways of changing the mind. Why is this one a spot where we have to be aware of conflicts with the Bible? Sure, if we don't have the right source of truth by which we change our thinking, then we can change our thinking and have life function better, but perhaps because we're giving into sinful desires, not because we're honoring God. Abnormal psychology is a further development uh, when it is clinical psychology applied to specific subtypes of problems. I'm not saying that all of these are completely flawed. There are elements of truth in all of them. The danger is they all come at it without reference to God, without reference to sin, and with an emphasis on fixing problems that puts human reasoning as the authority of before and above God. So contrasting biblical and secular models. The next page are two, it's a long two pages, but I think it's a really helpful excerpt. This is from a book called, uh, or a, a journal article by a guy named David Pallison. He said, over the past hundred years, many paradigms or models have been suggested for how to think about or conceptualize this counseling relationship. Of course, in every case, one party is designated to act for the welfare, the good of another party but different counseling models structure the kind of relationship by putting different metaphors to work. 
Here are nine that have been hugely influential in professional psychotherapy circles. Counseling is science. An archaeologist of the psyche does research excavating a person's inner life, offering a technical analysis of the discovered data. The goal is personal insight. Secondly, all right, it's a little bit stuck. There you go. Secondly, you have the idea that counseling is animal training. Rewards to eliminate undesirable behaviors. The goal is behavioral alteration. Counseling is intentional friendship. A caring friend takes the time to draw out what you feel and think. The goal is a corrective experience, to feel understood by another, to find one's deepest instincts and perceptions affirmed rather than denied or discredited. Counseling is like team sports. A coach constructs a game plan for success in life, corrective and directive, helping the player to develop skills. Goals are framed in terms of a mutually desired end. Counseling is medicine. Diagnose the ailment, prescribe the medicine, fix the problem. Either cure the underlying cause or even more often just fix the symptoms. Now, quick comment on this. I think there's a legitimate place for medicine in dealing with problems that people have. There are um, abnormalities in the brain that can be caused by various kinds of damage. I mean, I've had to come to terms with that with connection with some of the things from Maggie's surgery and all those sorts of things. Um, at the same time, there is, it's also easy to turn to medicine as a way to not have to cope with life, whether that medicine is drinking alcohol or taking mood suppressant drugs or all those sorts of things. Sometimes it's easier to do that than to deal with underlying problems. Sometimes it's necessary, but the necessary is a probably a small portion. I mean, I think we see this in schools. Let's, let's prescribe to a lot of kids that maybe just are antsy instead of just the ones that legitimately have some sort of brain dysfunction. So again, I think we just have to be wise about that. Then we come to the, the idea of counseling as education. Fix the lack of knowledge, everything will be better. Counseling as technology, reprogram the computer, that's the cognitive behavioral model to some extent. Counseling is Hindu discipleship, experiences of self-transcendence. The goal is oneness and peacefulness or counseling is law. Figure out what happened, give your perspective on it, here's what should happen next. Sometimes it's a combination of all these things. What do they have in, mo in common? One needs help, the other seeks to be helpful. But, I'll let you keep reading that part of th the, the rest of that paragraph. Every form of counseling operates as a form of ministry, whether or not we recognize that. Even secular models function as a type of ministry. What are the biblical parallels? Counseling is ministry of the word. Counseling is pastoral care. Counseling is one anothering love between peers. This is the point where I think it has application to all of us in this room. God has called all of us to love one another, encourage one another with scripture, and grow in maturity through that process. And that's where all of us can participate in biblical counseling. These are not in conflict, but rather part of the overall goal of what God is, is seeking to accomplish. So my goal is not to say, let's start a ministry where we invite people from the community in 
and try to fix their problems. My goal in us doing this study is to say, what is a biblical way for us to look at our lives, see what God says, see where our lives don't match, see how we can encourage one another to live more faithfully toward God. Let's pray. Lord, we looked at a lot of ideas this morning and um, not time to do all of them justice and all of the ins and outs, but ultimately the most important thing is to recognize that we are influenced in many ways by the concepts of our society which have been influenced by these people who have put forth ideas that have shaped our perspectives on things. Lord, help us to recognize where our perspective on a particular situation is not driven by your word, but is instead driven by our own uh, concepts of things or other people's ideas about things. And to the extent that our thinking doesn't match up with the Bible, help us to align it with the Bible. To the extent that what we love isn't what we ought to love, help us to turn away from it and change that. To the extent that what we're doing doesn't honor you, help us to start doing what pleases you. We pray this and ask you to bless the service in a few moments. In Christ's name, amen.